$31.4 trillion of debt, and it's nobody's fault. But at least one man has a solution, and it's not a new one. I'm Scott Ott with uh, Zoe Rachel sitting in for Bill Whittle and Stephen Green, and this episode of Right Angle is brought to you by the members at BillWhittle.com. Uh, gentlemen, there is an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal by a guy named John Cogan, who I had not previously heard of, but he is the author of a book. Uh, let me see if I can get the title of the book for you. Um, ugh, I misplaced it. <laughs> I will get it for you before the end of the show. Uh, but anyway, it's a book about, oh, it's, I think it's called The High uh, Price of Good Intentions uh, or The High Cost of Good Intentions. In any case, um, he has an interesting idea about how we can contain, as conservatives used to care about, uh, the national debt and get it back down to what it should be, which is an annually balanced budget. Um, and there are basically two factors at play here. One is that there are these omnibus bills that are contain everything and the kitchen sink um, that are developed by like 12 different committees in each House of Congress and the House of Representatives and the Senate, um, and then all cobbled together and treated as if it's this one big thing. But there's no one committee that's responsible for restraining spending. In fact, quite the opposite, and here's the second factor, at least two-thirds of the budget is uh, mandatory, so to speak. In other words, yeah. the, the non-discretionary spending, which we don't have any choice about, we have to do this, um, is most of the budget what we would call entitlements. And, um, and when I say, and before anybody jumps on the comments and says, it's a lot more than $31.4 let me just say, it's a lot more than $31.4 We're not counting everything, um, but this is just what they consider to be you know, this year's debt. Um, entitlement programs, says Kogan, have accounted for all of the growth in federal spending relative to gross domestic product in the past 60 years. So for those people who jump up and say, well, we didn't spend so much money on the military, blah, 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 blah. But the real growth relative to GDP is coming because of entitlement spending. And that, for all intents and purposes, is off the table. But Stephen Green, there was a time in American history where the budget wasn't handled that way. Um, and let me, uh, let me read a quote, for, two quotes from unlikely sources. Um, let me see. Here we go. The first one says this, it will be impossible to deal in any but a very wasteful and extravagant fashion with the enormous appropriation of public monies unless the House, the House of Representatives, will consent to return to its former practice of initiating and preparing all appropriations bills through a single committee. In other words, he's saying somebody has to be accountable for the overall spending of the country. The debt and that radical, that radical conservative was President Woodrow Wilson in <laughs> 1917. And then one more quote here, um, and this is from a senator. New, and this was a bill proposed by the senator with the objective that uh, new and existing entitlements would be subject to the appropriation of funds, thus effectively ending their entitlement status. Senator Joseph R. Biden, June 1979. So wow. 
Kogan is a genius for quoting Wilson and Biden in this piece in the Wall Street Journal because the immediate attack from the left would be, well, it's just more conservative mumbo jumbo. But here we have, you know, one of the most progressive presidents in American history, at least up until the present day, Woodrow Wilson and then Joe Biden, both at one time in their careers calling for this same idea, both ideas, which is number one, make at least uh, one accountable unit in Congress responsible for the overall budget of the, of the country. And then the other is end this idea that there are entitlements that are beyond the scope of appropriation allocation so that they, you know, so that somebody can actually go in there and say, no, we're not going to spend this money this way. Or if we are going to spend this money this way, we've got to make it up somewhere else. Um, Stephen Green, I know uh, we've talked about all kinds of possible solutions over the years, different tax structures, different, you know, term limits, different, all kinds of stuff. But it seems to me from a process perspective, that if it worked in the 1800s, and really it did up until about the 1870s, 1880s, when they started dispersing the authority for the budget to various committees, then why not restore that authority with accountability now in Congress? Well, uh, given today's political climate, I wouldn't want to have that job. That would just be a huge X on your target from 434 other congressmen, and if you're on the Senate side, 99 other senators, plus precisely every other person in Washington, D.C., and every single person in the United States who gets money from the federal government, which is pretty much all of us now. <laughs> it's it's over. Um, the, only, the only way out of this now is for us to drive off the cliff into the brick wall while in a dumpster fire. Um, I, I wish I, I wish there were a process solution to our spending addiction, Scott. But the fact is what really uh, restrained our debt before was that we were on, at least notionally, uh, the gold standard. And that was a real break on how much Congress could borrow. Nixon broke that in, uh, I guess it was uh, the early 70s, I think it was 73, and that is effectively unchecked any ability or, or willingness to, to, to drive up debt, because there's just, there's, there's no break whatsoever, and, and, and there won't be until we, until we hit the wall. Look, if, if, if you look at our accumulated national debt, it, it really starts to go up in the 70s, and that's, that's precisely why. Even World War II. Here, here's the thing. People go, oh, we compare this level of spending to World War II. The thing is, World War II had an end in sight. Okay, That war was waged by serious men who had a goal of getting all of those drafted men and volunteered men home in as great a numbers as they could, as quickly as they could. And that's why we got in and out of that war on on two major fronts on opposite sides of the world in three and a half years. Okay, this this was a serious thing fought by serious men. We, we don't have that today. And we racked up a lot of debt in World War II. We had to borrow a lot of money to finance that war. But then, after the war, spending got back under control because it had to, because at least notionally we were still on some kind of a gold standard. So these, these World War II comparisons are specious. There's no end to the war on poverty. There's no end to uh, to providing health care to everybody who wants health care. 
because there's no end to the appetite for these things, and there's no break on Congress for these things. And we're at the point where I think if I think if we had to, if I think if we wanted to balance the budget with today's tax revenues, we would have to to cut spending clean to the bone to something like 2017 or 2018 when everybody was starving to death in the streets because there wasn't enough government spending. No, the fact is, we are we are on a glide path to absolute fiscal ruin. And there is no longer a process reform left to undo it because there's no appetite for it, because there's no break on it. And I hate to be the doom and gloom guy, but there you have it. So, Rachel, um, they, in Kogan's column in the Wall Street Journal, he says, no committee is accountable for total spending. None has incentive to keep overall spending down. However, he points out that after, in the like 1870s and 1880s, when we got away from that single committee responsibility and dispersed it over a bunch of committees, um, all of whom were you know, spending like crazy and no individual committee responsible, um, that we started running deficits beyond just wartime and deep recessions, which were periodically happening in the history of the country. However, in 1920, the House again consolidated appropriations into one committee, and two years later, the Senate followed. From 1920 to 1930, federal spending was somewhat restrained, and an annual budget was balanced. And that remained until really the kickoff of the entitlement era when the Roosevelt administration came in, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and uh, began instituting all these entitlement concepts. Um, I'm not as... uh, as negative as Steve is about this, because I see historically it can be done. I'm not suggesting that it would be easy, but my real question, though, is wouldn't it be better now to to vest the authority and the responsibility for that in an identifiable group of people rather than saying every every congressman is able to go home to his home district and complain about how much money the federal budget is spending, but disavow responsibility because in their little corner of the world, there's nothing oh, man, to do Man, it'd be nice it. if we could take those steps where we could get back to the Gilded Age, you know what I'm saying? It's like, look... Um, they, they, you have these guises like, uh, say, for instance, we got this, uh, we got this so-called, or actually, no, I'm going to go ahead and call it, man, this proxy war that we have with uh, Ukraine, where all this money is being funneled into that, and they want to try to say that it's entitlements that's, that's going to make up the, the whole big thing of the spending. And I would say, look, this is another thing that's proof. It's like you want to get involved with these wars, and people say that, oh, well, you know, it's the military-industrial complex that's, that's making all this money, and that's where we get all our money is from war. It's like, really? Well, we got a war going on right now. You would think that we would be rolling in it, but our economy sucks despite these wars that, you know, that, that we're having, even if it's a proxy war or whatever uh, conflict that we might be involved in. It doesn't seem to be helping our economy at all. So, uh, you know, with with... What's going on right now is you have these people who think that, you know, whatever taxes that we're paying, man, it goes into some general fund and, and uh, you have like this oversight that's over. It's like, no, that's not that's not, you know, or actually that's where it does go. It goes into a general fund and you think that there's these things that this money that you pay into uh, goes into all that stuff to, to look out for your particular interest. And actually, no, it doesn't. So, you know, we we have this. Uh, what would also be great is I think, uh, you know, cons- bringing up uh, Woodrow Wilson. Uh, I think around his time, a little bit before that, he exploited the fact that we had this new amendment in there that allowed the government to get into our pockets, uh, our pockets with uh, the what was it, the 16th Amendment, 
Uh, so that would be one of those directions that we could really go in that would really help us out. Abolish the 16th Amendment, make it to where you cannot tax our income, get us back to uh, that capitalist state that yeah. we were supposed to be in that we haven't enjoyed for probably over 100 years. That would be a good place to start. Uh, and if you're going to have oversight on that, you know, it's like, yes, let's make sure that the Congress does not have power to tax us outside of the original constitutional model. That would be a, a, a recommendation of, of mine. So Article 1, Section 8, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution says the Congress shall have power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises to pay the debts and provide for the common defense and general welfare of the United States. Now, the courts over the years, including the Supreme Court, have basically stayed out of trying to define what the general welfare is. They've basically said that's non-justiciable. That's something that the courts don't deal with. That's a political question that is delegated to Congress. So Congress has basically decided that the general welfare means whatever they want it to mean. Whatever they Liberal want to spend money on yep. is okay with Congress. So the question really, it's not a constitutional question so much because Congress at least clearly has the, the authority to tax. They have the authority to spend money. It's really one of organization within Congress of how you handle things. And if Republicans, at least nominally or marginally, are in control of the House of Representatives right now, it might be a good time to start looking at that process and saying, how can we make sure that accountability rests somewhere so that we no longer let our members go back to their home districts and claim that they're fighting tooth and nail for us and then go back to Washington, D.C., and they all gather around this, this giant trough and they wash their hands and shake it off and walk away and say, well, what can I do? I'm just one man. I'm just on this committee, and we can't even control the spending because that spending is mandated. Do you know that these, these entitlement programs are not under the control of Congress, they're under the control of, of various kinds of economic factors and demographic factors and, and things. Basically, they're just growing out of control. So Congress doesn't put limits of, of them Scott. on them at the beginning. They're basically saying, well, we've got all these people that we have to serve and the economy is doing this and we have to spend this. And so it just goes. Scott, it just gets spent. They're under the control of everything but our actual finances. Yes, that's right. So there's no there's no actual controlling governing authority there. That's what I was saying um, the omnibus structure of the budget and the twelve committee dispersal thing guarantees an ever expanding spending pattern. And the only way to change that pattern is not through some ideological thing that would be objectionable to the other side, whichever side you happen to be on but is actually a process measure that shouldn't be objectionable to anybody. If you stood before the voters and said, hey, how many of you, Republican or Democrat, agree that somebody should be accountable in Congress for how the money gets spent? I think you could find wide agreement among all parties, except for the extremes uh, you know, at either end, who think that there should be some constraint in Congress. Somebody should determine that. And that's why John Kogan quoted in his Wall Street Journal piece from Woodrow Wilson and Joe Biden. He wanted to, to reach out to the other side and say, hey, look, this isn't some wacky conservative idea. This is a normal governance idea. So there are, I think, two great reforms that the Republicans in the House could advocate. And the number one is 
the elimination of non-discretionary spending. And by that, I don't mean that we don't spend the money. I mean, just get it out of the budget. It's not part of the budget anyway. Why are you even talking about it? Spin it off. If it's not adjustable by Congress, it's a private entity. It is like the Federal Reserve. You don't have any control over that. If, if once you set that monster in motion, make it self-funding and, and kick it out and just say, look, you know, you've got to take care of yourself because if we can't control the spending on it, then we can't control it at all. And so therefore, it's, it's not Congress's responsibility. So you, you can cancel all the entitlement programs or you can just say, look, every entitlement program can exist on its own two legs if it's being funded through taxpayer dollars or voluntary contributions or however it's being funded, but it's not under the purview of Congress. The, co the congressional budget should be a lot smaller, a third of what it really is. Um, and then the second thing is, I really think Kogan has a great idea here, is have a singular appropriations committee with a balanced budget mandate. And I don't mean a balanced budget amendment to the Constitution. I mean just a procedural mandate to that committee that says you're responsible in the remaining third of discretionary spending to balance that budget. And if you wanna spend like crazy, then you need to stand up and say, okay, America, we need a lot more money and we can't borrow it anymore. We need you to give it to us now <laughs> and see how that floats. And I don't think people of either party are going to feel good about that because $31.4 trillion in debt means that you, every night, when you kiss your baby goodnight at his crib and give him his baba and wrap him in his banky and lay him down, <laughs> You are saying, hey, son, I'm reserving many thousands of dollars of debt for you in your future. Do you mind? Maybe could I break your leg right now because I'm intentionally crippling you. I might as well cripple you physically just so you can get a visual picture of what I'm doing to you. We are doing that to our children and our grandchildren, and we should not have a stomach for it. And I'm not asking for some great revolution or constitutional amendment. I'm asking for Republicans who have control of the processes in the House of Representatives to implement a process that has worked more than once before in the history of the Republic and has led to very salutary results. And it wasn't just that it was a golden age, as Zoe indicates. It wasn't just that, oh, coincidentally, there became this great boom time. It was a confluence of factors, including responsibility of the, of the Congress and the Senate and the President, uh, Calvin Coolidge. Those factors all came together in combination with the innovation that's going on all, all the time in this economy. So anyway, that little change, those two little changes could make a huge difference in our day-to-day -day lives. And somebody, please send this video to Kevin McCarthy. For Stephen Green and Zoe Rachel, I'm Scott Ott. Thanks to the members at BillWhittle.com for making Right Angle possible.